Amen. Thank you, team. You may be seated. Thank you, team. Thank you so much. And there is such peace and power in the name of Jesus Christ. And what a privilege to gather with you today in His name. And we welcome all those joining us online. And grateful for those that are over in the other service and the hub worshiping this morning. So welcome to all of you and this opportunity to worship with you once again. Have your Bibles. We'll be looking at uh, the book of Romans, chapter 5, as Fred read that passage earlier. As you're turning there, let me tell you of a few things that are happening here in our church ministry over the next few weeks. It's hard to believe that uh, tomorrow's the last day of October. Uh, yes, Halloween, okay? And I want to encourage you, do not celebrate Halloween. Do not celebrate it. Uh, my family, we've never celebrated it. We like to refer to it as plundering the Egyptians, okay? It's, in the, it's a biblical festival. You'll find that in Exodus chapter 14. So do not celebrate uh, Halloween. Plunder the Egyptians, okay, in Jesus' name. Our, and uh, so, but we enter into November. November here at West Park is always a reminder for us, as it should be all the time for us, of gratitude to what a gracious, generous God we have. And so we will uh, emphasize that aspect of gratitude and uh, generosity in our giving as we look forward to the uh, November 20th, that's uh, the Sunday before uh, Thanksgiving, uh, once again, our Jehovah Jireh offering. If you're new to West Park, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, for the last uh, 25 years or so, has been a time when we bring a special offering to the Lord. Uh, it has gone toward a number of things over the years, but generally having to do with our campus development here at the church. And once again, that's the case. Uh, we are involved in a construction project. I think many of you know that. If you have uh, children in the nursery or, uh, or in the uh, elementary areas, you certainly know it. And uh, we're grateful for that. But we are uh, building a, a new nursery wing that's well underway. And we're just getting ready now to start up out of the ground with the elementary building behind the gym, renovation of our preschool uh, area and some other things. And so we have planned this for some time and it got started a little over a year ago with some things, but now it's well underway. And so I encourage you for your generosity toward that to be praying about that offering. The theme for uh, uh, November, which you'll receive in some information if you've not all received it in the mail, you should, and it will be here certainly next Sunday for you to pick up. It's called Generosity for Generations. Generosity for Generations. And one blessing I've had over being here nearly 36 years is to see generations of boys and girls, young people, come to know the Lord, be discipled, and now they are serving the Lord uh, all over the world, literally. But I'm always encouraged not just to think of the generations that have been, but the one now and by faith, the ones that are coming, right? And it's our desire that until Jesus comes, uh, this will be a place where families will receive ministry, boys and girls will learn about Christ, young people trained in the things of the Lord, grow up, go out to serve Him. For generations, uh, if the Lord does not return, uh, after you and I are with the Lord, 
So I encourage you to think about that as we'll be talking about that kind of generosity, generational generosity, over the next few Sundays uh, leading up until Thanksgiving, that Jehovah Jireh offering, and then, of course, we're into the Advent season to celebrate the coming of our Lord and the second coming of our Lord as we await Him. So exciting times ahead of us. Next Sunday afternoon at 5 o'clock is our annual meeting as a church. You probably are aware of that. It was announced. Hope that you can be a part of that important evening of discussion and decision. Well, now let's look at Romans chapter 5. And if you're our guest, you know... Once you know that we have been making a journey through this incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome, but also written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for believers of all ages. And we now are coming to chapter 5. And so turn there. You know, this week Susan and I had a really special blessing. We were able to meet with a couple uh, that we had not seen in 33 years. Uh, this couple actually served on our youth staff when we were involved in student ministries up in Ohio. Uh, they met each other on that staff, and actually, it was the very first wedding I ever performed. I uh, performed their wedding, and we laughed about who was the most nervous that day, <laughs> me or the groom. And I'm telling you, uh, I outnerved the groom by a long ways. It was, it was. It was just amazing, and I was terrified, uh, but by God's grace, tied a good knot that's lasted 38 years now. Uh, but w that was the first of probably 200 weddings now over the years that I've been able to uh, part uh, participate in. And once you know, in conducting 200 weddings, that means that I've been involved in probably 800 to 1,000 pre-marriage counseling sessions because before uh, I am involved in the service, I don't want to just prepare the couple for ceremony, but for the life that is being united in this new family. And so we take time to do that. And so I've had 800 or 1,000 of those. And you know... After a few hundred, you start to learn a few things about families, okay? And that leads you to asking questions that could be challenges down the road for the couple. And one area I've always looked into at length and asked some questions about, and sometimes it's a, I can tell it's surprising them a little bit, I ask them individually about their families their immediate families, their extended family. And then I shift to ask them about what are your family traditions? What do you regularly do in your family traditions? Because this is something that I've found out. A couple can think it's just us two getting married. Yes, but there are two families coming together. And when one couple tries to satisfy two families, wow, okay? And so I, I've tried to help them understand that actually there are two families that are coming together in them. And families can be different. Really different. Okay, really different. In marriage, family matters. It really, really matters. But oh, 
how much more family matters when it comes to salvation. To, to salvation. That's my message today. It's the message of the Apostle Paul. It's the message of God. As we think about what Paul says here regarding salvation, it's about family. And when it comes to salvation, which family you're in matters. Hey, it really matters. It really matters. And so, as you've heard in this reading, and from last week, if you were here, Paul is using this image of the family. There's an image of family. And in reality, listen carefully, for all the billions of families that are on this planet, and all the billions of families that have existed up until this point in time, in reality, there are only two families, according to the gospel. There is the family that's called by Paul, the family of Adam, and then there is the family of Jesus. There's the family of Adam and the family of Jesus. And it is important to make sure that you know that you are, yes, a part of that family of Adam, but now by grace, you are part of the family of Jesus. Amen. Nothing's more important. And so Paul is writing this, and it is a very, very involved discussion that he's having. If you listen, as Fred read, that is a very, very tight, logical presentation that Paul is making here. And we recognize that this is, in many ways, a deep passage of Scripture. And as I've prepared this week for this message, and as I'm standing here this morning, I'm, I'm trying to follow the guidance of two quotes that I've come across. The first quote is from one man. These two men lived about the same time. One man was a very famous evangelist. I've mentioned him before even recently, Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday, when he was challenging preachers about their preaching, he said this. He said, in warning about preaching complicated and complex sermons, he said this, quote, Preachers, put the cookies on the table where all God's children can get at them. <laughs> That's pretty good. And I want to be careful that I do that. Not that I could put them too high on any table with the way my mind works. But I want you to know there's a contemporary of his who made a quote about complicated things. His name was Albert Einstein. And here's what Albert Einstein said. We need to make things as simple as possible but not more simple than they are. We need to make things as simple as possible, but not more simple than we are. We want to be very sure we don't dumb down the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this passage that we've just read together is universally agreed upon by Bible teachers to be one of the most important, but also one of the most difficult passages to follow in the entire Word of God. Yet, folks, listen, it is the Word of God. 
What Fred just read here this morning is the word of the living God. And though it is challenging, yet by the Spirit of God, we cannot avoid what's here. We must say, Lord, help us to understand what you're saying here. And friends, I want you to know it matters. It really matters. It really matters. So I want to, by God's grace, to just look at this passage that opens up our understanding of our salvation in Christ by image of a family in these three points. Here's the three points in case I don't get to the third one. All right. Number one, verses 12 to 14, Paul describes a family ruined, a family ruined. Then, in verses 15 to 19, Paul talks about a family rescued. A family rescued. And then, verses 20 and 21, Paul talks about a family reigning. A family reigning. A family ruined, a family rescued, and a family reigning. Those are the three points I want us to consider this passage with today. So first of all, Paul describes a family that has been ruined. And for everyone here, he's talking about our family. Look and listen. Verse 12. Verse 12, if you would. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now notice Paul takes the issue of sin and death back to a person named Adam. And now let me just say something here in an aside, but I want to make sure we understand it. Some people say that Adam and Eve are mythological, that they're just uh, types, they're, they're not real people. But what we have to understand here is if Adam is not a real person, then the whole New Testament message of redemption collapses on that. Because if Adam is not a real person, then how do we know Jesus is a real person? And if what is said about Adam is not true, then how can we say what is true about Jesus? The message here, Paul says the human race was ruined in Adam. Now, how were we ruined millennia, thousands and thousands of years before we were born? How were we ruined? Notice what the Bible says, that in Adam, in this man, we all sinned. Now, the Bible's very clear. We are all sinners. The Bible says we've all come short of God's standard by our sin, chapter 3. But here, notice, he's not talking about the sin in our lifetime. He's talking about past sin. This is aorist tense in the Greek language. It means an actual time of sin. A sin that took place in Adam. The Bible is saying here, we sinned in Adam's sin. Now... For us here in the West, in America especially, 
with our individualism to think that someone else's actions have any impact on us seems very strange to us in our culture. That's not how they think in Asia. That's not how they think in Africa and most of the other world, but around the world. But here we have to see the biblical message is this. Adam is more than just an individual man, though he was an individual man. The word for Adam in Hebrew is a reference to mankind. He, it's, the word itself has the idea of mankind, humankind, if you will. All of the human race, all of mankind was in Adam. He was the representative of the entire creation. He was over all of God's creation. The entire human race was in him. So when he sinned, our representative sinned. And our sin was in him. Therefore, when he sinned, we sinned. This is what the Bible is saying here about sin. Now, we practice that on a regular basis. We have here in the United States a democracy and a republic. What does that mean? That means in our democracy, we elect representatives. And the representatives go either Nashville, they go to uh, Washington. Now listen carefully, when that representative votes, we vote. When she votes, we vote. When he votes, we vote because he or she represents us. This is what the Bible in a much greater sense is saying. Adam was the representative of not only all creation, but all human beings. And when he sinned, we all participated in that. We're all in the same boat as sinners. And friend, I want you to know, the Bible says that boat is a ship of death. Because what happens as a result of sin? Look at verse 12. It says, as by one man sin came into the world, and what followed that sin? And death through sin, and death passed upon all men. That means physical death. Yes, Adam and Eve would die, but also spiritually dead, separated from God, no longer able to come into his presence. This is also what passed upon mankind in Adam's sin. Physical death and spiritual death. Not just to Adam, but to the whole race. And some people say, well, it, I can't believe that people are born sinners already. Do you have children, grandchildren? Have, have you ever served in the nursery? You know, they're back there right now saying, now listen, Billy, this is how you steal. <laughs> listen, Emery, this is how you lie. No, we don't have to give courses in that around here. <laughs> what? Something's wrong. Something's wrong with that child. And there's something inherent and it begins to be demonstrated in all of our lives that we're sinners by nature. And as soon as we can, we're sinners by choice. This is the reality. Now notice, 
Paul says in verse 13 that this awful principle of sin was at work. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. You've got to understand thousands of years after Adam before Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai. Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there wasn't any sin, really, or accounted as sin before Moses? No, no, no. What it means is that the law of God that was given to Moses, it caused sin to be defined as transgression of God's Word, transgression of his command. And the law was given to show and demonstrate that when we choose to disobey God, it is a choice which is contrary to his very nature and his word. Let's, let me put it this way. Let's say you walk on your neighbor's yard and you don't have permission. And you've been doing it for a long time. Walking on your neighbor's yard, he never gave you permission. All right, but now you're out for a walk one day, and it's, there's a sign up that says, Do not walk on my yard. Trespassers will be shot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Things have changed a little bit, wouldn't you say? Yeah, were you, did you only become wrong when that sign went up? No, but the consequences have changed. Okay. Here's the situation. God, through the law, giving of the law, revealed our sin for what it really is. It is a, a rebellion by God, against God. It's a rebellion against Him. But now notice this. Whether with the law or without the law, death is universal. <laughs> Since Adam. Look at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses before the law was given. Even over those whose sinning was not exactly like that of Adam. And Adam, he's going to pick this thought up, is a type of the one who is to come. And he's referencing here Jesus Christ. Now what's Paul saying here? He is saying... That sin, since Adam, has been universal. And death by that sin has been universal. Friends, listen carefully. People do not become sinners because they sin. People sin because they're sinners. Understand that? We don't become sinners when we sin. We are sinners and that's the reason we sin. It's, it, look at it this way. Have you ever picked up an apple and you see a wormhole in there? And you say, man, I don't know if I want to eat that apple. I don't want to bite into some worm that's in there. You don't have to worry about it. The worm didn't make the hole on the way in. The worm made that hole on the way out. The larva of the worm was in the bud. And that worm ate his way out. So it is with us. There's something wrong in us. And it works its way out in our lives. The Bible says this is sin. 
and death has passed upon all people. So now let's just sum this up so far. Sum it up. The human race, by unity with Adam, stands under the ruin of sin and death. Because Adam is our head, our federal head. We stand under him in the ruin of sin and death. Now there are some who say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> Number one, they say that not fair because they would have done better than Adam, no doubt. Okay, sure, yeah, yeah, we'd have, we'd have won that war. But now listen carefully what I'm about to say. God declaring us all condemned under Adam is really an act of grace. Why is that? Because he can make our salvation from sin under another one who has come to be a head of a family and that other representative is Jesus Christ. What Paul is describing here, remember, two families. And the head of one family is Adam. And because Adam, Adam was the federal head of that family, what he did brought the whole family under the condemnation of sin and death. But God was not surprised. He had a plan by, of salvation where he would have another man, a second Adam, who would come and stand for his family. And everything that he did would be credited to his family. You see the image here of the gospel? The second Adam. That's what Paul means in verse 14. That Adam was a type of the one who is to come. He's talking about Jesus. Adam was the federal head of humankind. Jesus comes as the representative and federal head of all of those who are his people. So now we see here, in Adam, we have a family ruined. But notice... In Christ, the second Adam, we have a family rescued. Isn't that wonderful? We have a family rescued. Adam and Jesus are like each other in one great sense. They both stand for a family. That's how Adam and Jesus are alike. They both stand for a family. The family of humankind... And the family of the redeemed, the family of God under Jesus Christ. Adam stands for the family of mankind. Jesus stands for his family, the family of God. Now notice, here's the key that Paul is doing. He's comparing. This is, listen carefully. Follow the thought. Are you following it? He's comparing now... What happened because of the first Adam overwhelmed by what was accomplished through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he shows us what is true of Adam 
is only true of Jesus in the opposite sense. What's what he's going to do? All these things that are true of Adam, sin, death, condemnation to his family, the opposite is true of the family of God through Christ. There's righteousness, free grace, and complete justification. Now listen, this is how Adam and Jesus are only alike because they each stand for their family. I like what one commentator said. He said, there is a greater distance between Christ and Adam than between a grasshopper and an archangel. <laughs> that's, that's pretty strong. And let, let me say this in an aside. This is why one of the great heresies of Mormonism. Because Mormonism teaches that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. One chose the Father's will. One chose to be disobedient. One is the family head of darkness. One is the family head of light. That is complete falsehood. Lucifer and Jesus have never been brothers. Jesus is the Son of the living God, exalted forever, co-equal with the Father, God of God. Amen. And Lucifer was a reigning angel, but he sinned against that holy God and fell to this earth, corrupt, and will be judged, <laughs> not by his other brother one day. He'll be judged by the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. That's just free. That's not in the notes there, okay? <laughs> Putting that in there, okay? I couldn't help myself, all right? Now, notice the four contrasts here, very quickly. Four contra contrasts between Adam, what he did for his family, and Jesus, what he does for his family, okay? Number one, there's the contrast of guilt to grace, <laughs> Adam brought guilt for his family. Jesus brings grace. Notice verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. That is Adam's trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The work of Adam brought natural results. It brought sin and guilt. The work of Jesus has brought supernatural results. The supernatural results of grace. And, and not just enough grace. What does it say? Much more. <laughs> Much more grace. Much more grace than there was sin. Thought of this this week. Let's say that you have an old clunker car like I do. <laughs> okay. and, I, and I'm grateful, Lord, for that clunker car. But I, it is a clunker. <laughs> and let's say it breaks down the side of the road. And somebody with a Rolls Royce, driving a Rolls Royce, comes by and the window comes down and the man leans out of the back and says, I'm sorry, old chap. 
you seem to have a problem here. Would this cover the problem? And he hands you $100,000. I know what I'm going to say. Yeah, that just about covered, I think. Okay, that's, that's what I'm going to say. Before this man sobers up, that's what I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> what, you, what, what am I saying? I'm broken down the side of the road. I got this junker of a car. I can't hardly keep it going. And a man comes and just doesn't fix my car. He so abundantly gives me enough. <laughs> I could get brand new car, maybe several brand new cars. This is what Adam did. Jesus has taken care of over in abundance by what he did. That's what Paul means when he says, much more, much more, much more than what Adam brought. Much more is the grace that's brought through Jesus. So if the head of your family, by faith, is Jesus, <laughs> your family wins the family feud. I want you to know that. Family win every time. Now notice the second contrast. There's a contrast of the guilt from Adam and the grace from Jesus. There's a contrast of condemnation that came from Adam to his family and justification that came from Jesus to his family. Look at verse 16 and verse 17. And the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace and the free gift by Jesus Christ abounded for many. Verse 16, keep following on the Free gift. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, all of our sins, this free gift in Christ, it's brought justification. Notice verse 18. Therefore, it's almost exactly the same. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so this act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. Now notice here. These verses, verse 16 and 18, are almost the same. Except in verse 18, Paul adds the words, all men, all mankind. Now it's important to stop here. When Paul says all mankind, he does not mean that every person will eventually be saved. That would be teaching universalism, which is not in agreement with the Bible. All people will not be saved. So he's not saying universalism. We must remember what's the context. He's comparing two families. The family of Adam and the family of Jesus. And he's saying that what the one has done and brought condemnation to his family, what this one has done, even though we are sinners, has brought much more righteousness and grace to us. Word here for condemnation 
means a sentence of condemnation. One act of sin by Adam brought a sentence of condemnation. But Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross, what did he bring? Not condemnation, justification. And what does justification mean? We've learned this already. It means to be declared by the judge not guilty. This is what Jesus has accomplished. What he has accomplished for his family is so much more than the sin of Adam. That on the basis of what he has accomplished, Jesus, his father, can declare all of those who are part of Jesus' family not guilty. Not guilty. Justification. Now make sure you understand what Paul is saying here. And this last part of six, verse 16. Verse 16, the last part, Paul says, But much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. By this incredible, gracious work of Christ, much more than our sin as descendants of Adam is His grace. And when we trust Him by faith, we become part of His family. And now, those that are in Christ and His family, I'll jump ahead here a little bit. What's Paul going to say? For those that are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no what? No condemnation. No condemnation. Because of what we've done? No. Because of what the head of our family did. Jesus Christ. Notice the third contrast. There's a contrast between Adam and Jesus of guilt to grace. There's a contrast of condemnation in Adam to justification in Jesus. Now notice there's a contrast of death in Adam to life in Jesus. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, that's those who receive Christ by faith, they also in Christ receive the free gift of righteousness reigning in life over them through that one man, Jesus Christ. Christ. You see, listen carefully. Adam's life brought death. Jesus' death brought life. There's the hub of it all. Adam, by his life and the disobedience, he brought death. The second Adam, by his death on the cross as our substitute, brought life and praise his name forever what's the legacy of Adam well sometime not right now please read Genesis chapter 5 <laughs> I don't, don't want to give you an off ramp to the sermon here okay but what you'll have is the genealogy of Adam and they're all different hard to pronounce names but something connects them all together all the patriarchs of the family, you know what it says about them? 
They lived such and such years, and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. <laughs> Little boy heard his Sunday school teacher reading that sometime. And he said, boy, I sure feel sorry for Andy. <laughs> okay. And he died. And he died. And he died. <laughs> I, thank you. All right. That's the, that's the family tree of Adam. And he died. 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 That's not the family tree of Jesus. All those in Jesus, he said, those who live and believe in me can never what? Die. Absent from this body. Present with the Lord. Amen. Just like a member of our staff yesterday, Bobby Gooden. God bless her. 88, 89 in our accounting department. <laughs> she had work brought to her in hospice on Monday. Can you imagine that? What a woman. But yesterday, uh, Doug and I had the opportunity to be there with her. And just a couple hours after we prayed with her, anointed her, she took her last breath. But I want to tell you, Bobby's more alive than anyone in this room right now. Amen. Absent from that body that was worn out now, present with the Lord. <laughs> it, how precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his people. That's what the Bible says. Adam's legacy is death. That the legacy of Jesus is life, 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 life. Here's the fourth contrast, and I hurry now. It's a contrast... The first one, Adam's guilt, Jesus' grace. Second one, Adam's condemnation, Jesus brought justification. Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. Here's the fourth one. Adam responded in disobedience to the Heavenly Father. Jesus responded for us in our place in obedience. Look at verse 19. We're told this. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now notice, the many. There are so many, many, many. A human race, innumerable, who were made sinners by one man's disobedience. But now an innumerable number, an innumerable number to come, have been made righteous by one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His obedience. He was completely obedient. You remember he said, as he was approaching Jerusalem, for this cause I came into the world, that I might give my life a ransom for many. Jesus' entire ministry was one of obedience. He was obedient to his Father all the way to Gethsemane when there was no other way, though he begged and 
tears, if there might be another way, but there was no other way for us to be saved and for us to be in his forever family. And then he won his victory there. Not my will, thy will be done. A whole race of redeemed people. A whole race of redeemed people who were lost in our own disobedience. But now we are righteous because of the one who lived for us and died for us. What a Savior is Jesus Christ. A people now, who are we? Those that are in the family of Jesus. We were a family ruined. But by Christ we were a family rescued. And now we are a family reigning. In the kingdom of God. We're already there. We're not all that we're going to be. But we're already in Christ. Verse 20 says. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Once, if you are a believer, once you were in the family of death. But now, you're in the family of life. You have everlasting life. Not that you're going to have it someday. You have it now as a present possession. He that believes on the Son has right now everlasting life. You'll just enter into a greater experience of it for all the ages. But if you are a believer in Jesus already, you have begun to reign in Christ. Because He's seated at the Father's right hand. And because he's seated there, guess what? He's our head. What's that mean? We're seated there too. He represented us when he came to this earth. He represented us on that cross. He represented us in that tomb. He represented us when he went back to heaven. And he represents us now. We're there. (laughs) In the heavenlies with him. This is the truth. Amazing grace this is. To be a part of a family reigning. And these two verses, Paul's comparing the power of the law and the power of grace. The law was given that sin might abound. What does that mean? God didn't give the law to cause people to sin. No, he gave the law to reveal his standard and to show us we couldn't keep it. We couldn't measure up. But you know what sinners do? When they see the standard, they intentionally break the standard. I was thinking of this this week. Tomorrow is Halloween. Plunder the Egyptians. And I thought about something that happened years ago in Ohio on Halloween night. Had my car parked on the street in front of our house. We didn't have a driveway. Some guys in the city... We're going around stealing carved pumpkins that were already all mushy and gushy. They came barreling down the street that we lived on. And one of them, I think, I didn't see it. You know, I wish I had. Well, no. Uh, they, one of them leaned out and lofted that pumpkin. 
it went right through the back window of my car, blew it out. That pumpkin hit my dashboard, blew up all over. Uh, next morning, it looked like strings of orange hanging down everywhere. Now, I'm talking about a football game. It was just, it was everywhere. I don't know how much I spent to get that thing clean. And then <laughs> I'd turn the heater on that winter and pumpkin would come out. And the <laughs> defroster would send out pumpkin. And it, I thought I got it all out. Next spring, I turn on the air conditioner, pumpkin comes out of that. We just called the car the great pumpkin, okay? But now to ask, I want to ask you something. What if I'd done this? I said, you know, I don't want that happening again. I don't want someone to throw a pumpkin through my car again. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to put a sign on the back window of my car that says, do not throw a pumpkin through my car. Guess what's going to happen? Yeah. Now that's the law. That's right. You ought not to throw pumpkins through people's windshields. And all God's people said, amen. You shouldn't do that. But if you put a sign up that says, don't do it, guess what people want to do? That's what the law does. Don't do this. It's not right. Oh, really? Where does that come from? Sin, our nature. That's what he's talking about. The law just stirs up our rebellion God's grace in Christ is so all-powerful that He brings a new nature into us so that, yes, we're still sinners, but we desire to live righteously. We, we don't want to do that. We desire to live righteously. Something's already reigning in us, making us want to please the Heavenly Father and live for Him. What is that? That's Christ in us, who's the hope of that glory to come. There's no power like the power of Jesus to overcome the power of sin. Amen. You know, a story's worth a thousand words. So I'm going to give you the story and we're done. Years ago, there was a man in Chicago who was so addicted to alcohol. His family was in poverty, no medication. He drank up everything. His little girl died, and he grieved over her, but alcohol gripped him. And that man went and took the little shoes off that little girl's feet in her coffin and sold them for money to get a drink. When he sobered up and realized what he had done, that man determined that he was going to commit suicide. And he was headed toward the bridge over the river to commit suicide. And as he's walking through one of those dark streets, he heard singing and a light coming out of a building. And he went over, and a man standing outside invited him to come in for a service and some food. And the man went inside that building, and it was the Pacific Garden Mission of Chicago. And there that night, he heard the gospel. And that night, 
He repented and gave his life to Jesus Christ by faith. He was gloriously saved. And that man who was so addicted to alcohol that he took the shoes off his dead baby girl to sell them for alcohol was so changed that eight years later he became an ordained minister and in his life started 67 rescue missions around the country. That man's name's Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter. My friend... That's what Jesus can do. That's what Jesus can do. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Can you get lower than that? It's hard to fathom getting lower than that as a man, a father. But look what Jesus can do. He can do the same for you. And same for you that are watching. Sin may abound in your life. In destructive power. Maybe you've been sinned against with destructive power. But I'm telling you, greater than any abuse that has come against you is the power of the grace of Jesus Christ. Your family may be the most dysfunctional, messed up family that has ever been. But I tell you, you can have a new family in Jesus Christ. And a new family spirit by trusting in Him. Everyone is in one or two families. Listen to me, church, this morning. Listen to me, friends. You are in one of two of these families. Either you are in the family of Adam. Sin, death, condemnation, judgment. Or you're in the family of Jesus. Obedience, righteousness, grace, Freedom, justification. You're in one of those families. You're in one of those families. Which family are you in? We say, well, how do you get into the family? How do you get into the family of Jesus? Well, how did you get into the family of mankind? You were born into the family. How do you get into the family of Jesus? Jesus told us, you must be what? Born again. How are you born again? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world, Jesus told us how to be born again. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John tells us that as many as received him, received Christ, to them he gives the privilege of being called the children of God. You say, I don't earn it. You can't earn it. It's a free gift. Bought and paid for by Jesus. Will you let go of your life and turn to Jesus Christ for true life? Because you receive him. It's, life is in Jesus. He that has the Son has life. And he that does not have the Son does not have life. The family of Adam, the family of Jesus. Which family are you in? Turn. Turn from trying to fix yourself. Turn from trying to have a church do it. 
Turn from trying to reform yourself. You can't reform yourself. Turn from penance and works and turn to Jesus Christ who did it all. And in humility say, I can't save myself, Lord Jesus, save me. My friend, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that way will be saved. And if you will call today, friend, I want to tell you something. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, oh, I pray right now. I pray right now that people are asking, which family am I in? Which family am I in? How do I know I'm in? Oh Lord, in your mercy, show Jesus, reveal Jesus. I pray, Lord, as I prayed all week, I prayed this morning, Lord, please let this word of gospel bring people to Christ. That they might give up on themselves <laughs> Receive Jesus and find themselves, find their life in Him. I pray, Lord, for that this morning. And now, Lord, I pray, forgive us for tinkering with the stuff of this world. Forgive us for clutching onto things that only keep us bogged down. Help us to lay hold of Christ, to pursue Him, and to count Him the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field. Help us to value Christ above all things. To know Him and make Him known is my prayer, O Lord. And God's people who agreed with this, would you say, Amen and amen.